Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Natalie Schluter. Natalie is an associate professor at the Department of Computer Science in IT University of Copenhagen and the head of the program for a new data science degree offered at the university. Her main research is in theoretical computer science and its applications in NLP and data science. Welcome to the podcast, Natalie. Thanks for having me. So today, we're going to talk about your paper published at EMLP recently titled The Glass Ceiling in NLP, a reference to the unethical barrier that denies highly achieving women from accessing more senior roles in the research community. Uh, could you start by telling us the motivation for you to study phenomena in a quantitative way? That's the thing. It's not really my area. I mean, I'm a, I'm a data scientist. I'm interested in, in different problems, but my main area of research, obviously, is NLP the field and not a meta-analysis on the people in NLP. But I had been hearing, I mean, I've, I've known the struggles that I have been going through, but for me, that was just anecdotal. And then in recent years, um, I, I kept hearing that actually there wasn't any problem when we compared computer science to NLP, that NLP was doing well, that there was no problem for, for female researchers. And I had heard about this really amazing model for um, describing power inequality in mentor-mentee networks. And I thought, well, why don't I just see what's actually happening in the NLP community? That. Yeah, that's that's very intriguing, and it's a very good time for doing this because like there's more awareness about gender inequality in all sorts of uh, domains, and it's definitely an important problem to study. How did you actually study this? You looked at the mentor-mentee relationships in authorship, in paper authorships, and the ACL ontology. Uh, could you elaborate on how this works? What are the main building blocks for doing this analysis? The main thing is that we have this pretty steady proportion of female researchers in our community, and it looks not so bad. It's around a third of the researchers that are female, and that's in comparison to the computer science general uh, field, which is maybe down towards 20 or even I've heard statistics less than that. But one thing that this number, this very basic proportion of female researchers didn't account for was the dynamics of power. So not only uh, should we be looking at how many females are actually in the community, but are they rising to positions of seniority in the field? Looking at mentor-mentee relationships by um, checking out who has published together is not a new thing. And so it, it's, a, it's quite a regular thing that's done in the network analysis, uh, network science communities. Where uh, in many fields like ours, in general, we tend to publish uh, with a mentor starting out. And so as the, the new person on the scene, possibly doing most of the dirty work in the research, we would end up with our name as the first author on the paper and with our mentor or supervisor, research supervisor, PhD supervisor, with the last position in the list of authors for the paper. Now, just having your name as a, a last author on a single paper is possibly questionable. So I thought, well, maybe if I consider having one's name on more than one paper, maybe two, maybe three, maybe there's some threshold that I can be sure of 
counts as, okay, now I'm actually a mentor. This is when I came up with looking at seniority at threshold T. So seniority at threshold T means that I've had my name at the senior position on the paper for T papers. So one distinction that's not clear to me is whether you have a note for every mention of an author name or do you consolidate all the multiple mentions for the same author name? I try to consolidate them. I do some name normalization. So, for example, I lowercase everything. Um, I Sorry, everybody. I take away accents out of the name because I found this to be not very regularly done in the in the author and the anthology i also take off things like senior and junior i remove middle names sorry again so i i do some some dirty work but there are a few things that i have to throw away in the end i have to throw away authors whose first name isn't given so it's just an initial because uh, i can't be sure who it's referring to and then when I'm taking all of these names, so these sort of normalized names that I've consolidated, I have to actually annotate them for genders. And I use a bunch of different lists for genders of first names. So I apply these lists automatically whenever it, the, the name is not ambiguously uh, male and female. So I ended up with about 3,000, over 3,000 names that I, I couldn't annotate automatically. And for those names... Um, I actually just went through uh, on a Google image search and, and tried to categorize the, the, the names by hand as being male or female. But for still around 1,600 names, I, I couldn't tell what the gender was, and I had to throw them out of the, of the data set. Right, so names like Jesse would be one of the thrown away, right? No, not necessarily. I mean, uh, unless there's two people named, so you said Jesse Knox. So you'll also look for the last name as well? For the last name. So it was mainly, uh, actually, the majority of these names were probably Chinese names, which when you spell them out in, in what our uh, Western alphabet, that uh, the, the names, well, I think some of the names are genuinely ambiguous, but of course there's no tones on these Chinese names when we spell it. So they're even more ambiguous than before. So quite literally, I would have two names, first and last name, and search for NLP with it, and up would come... Uh, a female researcher in NLP and a male researcher in NLP, and you just couldn't tell what was referring to what. Okay, and then you, depending on the threshold you used, you, you build different graphs to represent this relationship. And you draw a link, uh, an edge between two authors if they appear as first and last? That's right. So first and last, and then you get into my network. So that's the, like the setup for how to construct the raw data? So, I mean, I end up constructing this network, but I, I mean, I, I started off with a, like just some really basic data analysis. I wanted to first just look at the proportion of female and male mentors and, and just see. So you remember I have this, uh, we have this number, about a third of the researchers in the field are female. I wanted to look at the proportions and see if they were steady, as is this Gen general portion of males and females within the females is the proportion of mentors similar to that of of male mentors in the, in the male population uh, so that's the first study I, I carried out and what i showed so if you look at different levels of 
a mentor. So seniority at different thresholds, T. I showed that actually this book, the, the data showed that this there's actually a rising gap in the proportion of male mentors and, and female mentors. And this is the ratio between males who had this many papers as last authors among all male authors on that year or ever? This would be a, a cumulative number. So if you had... So if in 1995 you had seniority seven, then the next year you would still have seniority seven. This is a sort of cumulative number over time. So the proportions are, as you pointed out in the paper, like the rate at which they increase sometimes is stable, but recently you've seen a lot of discrepancies. What do you mean? I remember reading that earlier time they were close. Yeah, exactly. So they seem to maybe around 2000, like early 2000s, this gap in proportions starts to close in. So they start to become more equal. And then all of a sudden the gap widens up again, which is uh, probably following some of the changes in in mainstream in our in our domain, since we have such an interdisciplinary domain. So this hasn't been checked out at all, but we all we all kind of remember the mid two thousands as um, when basically everything became machine learning. So I, there are some hypotheses to check out in those numbers. I'm still trying to unpack a little bit this result. What you're data shows is that the proportion of mentors at various threshold values increases over time from like if we say that the threshold is two papers so a person has to be last author on two papers to be considered a mentor the proportion goes in 1995 from three percent of people who meet the mentor designation to seven percent of people who meet the mentor designation uh sorry these these males and of females it's 3% 3% to 6%. Why the increase in the first place? Like what what's going on here? Why is this why is the proportion of mentors increasing at all? Oh, well, I mean, there could be many factors in this, but I definitely don't study the the field and the impact as a meta researcher of NLP in the in the world. But I I would guess that the field is expanding that uh, people are recognizing NLP to become a field of its own, that uh, we're taking up more space in computer science departments, maybe taking up more space in big data companies for reasons like this. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. And I guess another interesting thing I would point out just from the data itself for leaving aside the gender issues for a minute, it sure looks like this proportion has leveled out in the last seven or so years, which is also interesting. I I guess this kind of supports what you were just saying. Like the way the way I read this is that maybe the field matured and has been like in a steady state for the last decade or so. Is that basically your understanding, too? I, I don't know about a steady state. So I don't know exactly what that would mean. But I would hope that people have become a little bit more aware of these gaps and of diversity problems in general and I have become appreciative that actually uh, there does need to be several different segments in, in this discipline and to maybe take more care that they aren't having. So if you look at the last graph in, in the, the figure that you're referring to, the flattening out doesn't exactly happen there. So I'm, I'm not sure if we can totally conclude that something is becoming stable. And 
I think we should be really careful to observe that the proportions are still not becoming equal. I mean, uh, so males are con uh, continuing to have a, a larger proportion of their population as mentors in our field. And I think we still need to examine why that's the case. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I wasn't trying to say otherwise. I was like, you, you have a bunch of interesting stuff in this data, and I was just commenting on something that wasn't related to gender at all. Because, because yes, e even if you, you want to say that with the, the lower threshold values, like the proportions of mentors isn't really changing much, you're, you're right, your data still shows there's a very significant gap between the two genders. Okay, so that was the first observation, that there is a growing mentor gender gap. The second one, you're talking about the time it takes for someone to become a mentor. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so I just looked at the time from first publication to achieving mentor status at threshold T. And I plotted this over the, over the years and for different thresholds. And once again, um, I show that there is a gap between the two genders, that it does take uh, females quite a bit longer time to achieve mentor status. So one thought that I had when I looked at this is that author disambiguation is going to have a big impact on this observation, but maybe not with the other ones. Have you seen cases where there is big gaps in the publication year, like maybe someone published a few uh, a few papers in 2000 and then they didn't publish until 2015? Have you seen things like this? So this may indicate merging of authors who are different but have the same name. Ah, right. So I actually, no, I didn't check any of this out. So, so for all of these analyses, I really tried to stay away from uh, looking into fringe cases because as soon as you start doing that, you just get into so many exceptions to, to every rule. So I, I made really kind of brutal decisions, like, for example, uh, calling a mentor the last author and calling the mentee the first author. That's kind of a brutal decision. I have a lot of papers that aren't, aren't like that. Uh, but I would hope that with large numbers, this observation would be a little bit robust and that I would be able to actually make statements uh, based on these very simple kind of harsh decisions that I've made. No, I agree. I think in aggregate, they're not that problematic. I guess I'm only worried about like extreme cases where the distance or the time it takes to become a mentor is really uh, much longer than it needs to be because... Uh, but this this effect, I don't think there is any specific reason to think it's going to be more, more verbose in, among males or females. Well, that's exactly it. So any sort of mistakes should be mistakes equally among the two genders. So can we talk about like the actual lengths we're talking about here? So for threshold of four papers where you're the last author, looks like there's a gap today of like 15 to 16 years on average for males and 17 to 18 years for females from when you publish your first paper to when you're considered a mentor. Is that, am I understanding this right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a long time. Yes. Yeah, this is uh, the first time actually I've thought about this idea of measuring how long it takes for someone to be a mentor. Yeah, it's surprisingly long.
Yeah, so I was actually really surprised by these results as well. I mean, of course, you also hear about fallout, uh, but this is a nice way to capture within the pool of people who actually made it to mentor status. Uh, can you see a visible obstacle in doing so? And, and I think this is captured by this time gap. I wonder how much variance there is. It would be interesting to also look at this. Yeah, so if you look at the, the background of each little subchart, I tried to give some understanding about what the statistical significance is. So the darker the background, the less statistically significant it is. Now, these are not like crazy significant. I have PVAL, last PVAL used at, for example, at threshold, um, at the last threshold, T equals 10, is a 0.113 p-value for statistical significance. Uh, all right, so that was your third observation uh, from the analysis that you did. Um, oh, sorry, that was the second one. Uh, and the third one was uh, in gender mentorship correlation with, uh, with future success. Um, could you talk a, a little bit about this? Yeah, sure. So uh, I just um, seen a really interesting paper this year about the chemistry field by Guru and Piacentini. They tried to look at the effect of in-gender supervision on uh, graduated PhD students acquiring a permanent position in academia later on. And they had really accurate data. So they had exact data for all of the students in the, in the states on uh, their the genders of their, their mentors. So who their mentors were, the genders of their mentors, and the, the jobs that they acquired. And that was for many years. So obviously mine is uh, an approximation of this. So what I did was I looked at, um, uh, so for different th thresholds of being becoming a mentor at threshold T, I tried to see uh, among those who had had just any female or any male supervisor, you just needed a hit that you had been mentored in some way by a female or a, men, uh, or a male. And that's where these numbers come out. So across the board, it, I showed that um, when there was this uh, in-gender relationship of, uh, of mentorship, that this was a, a stronger sort of predictor of success of becoming a mentor at Threshold T. So this is, uh, so just to, to make sure that the audience following, we look at the proportion in each cell of which the mentee ended up being a mentor. And in both males and females, so if I'm a male mentee, my chances are higher if I am mentored by a male. And if I'm a female, my chances are higher if I'm mentored by a female. Yeah, that's right. There's actually an interesting note on that. So my next step, so... Uh, was to construct a, a network and to apply a model. And there's actually an interesting note on that in the paper that I take the model from. So what they noticed was, so there is this concept, which is a very natural concept for people called homophily, which is this tendency for people to associate with others who are, are very much like them. Now, I suppose I can talk about the, the general model here. Um, as I'm about to explain, a, a glass ceiling effect can occur in a network where, amongst other things, uh, there is this homophily at work. Now, in this prediction for success, prediction like in gender supervision being a predictor of later success, according to this mathematical model, there's actually 
if we have absolute homophily, that means that if both genders completely ignore anyone who's not in their own gender, we basically make two parallel universes and there's no uh, there's no limit to the power that each gender can have. So what these numbers reflect really are, you know, if the females stay to themselves and the males stay stick with themselves and, and nobody talks together, then yeah, of course, trivially, we don't have any problem of a glass dealing effect because we're not talking to each other anyways and we don't really care about each other. Yeah, that's very interesting. So could you could you tell us a little more about how did you characterize the increasing homophily? How, like how do you measure what is expected and then compare it to what's actually happening? Yeah, so you mentioned that I constructed this network. Uh, so in the network, the, the mentors and the mentees, there are the nodes and the edges are the relationships between them. I got the, the idea from, for this, from this paper by Avin et al. in 2015. What they did was introduce what's called a bias preferential attachment model. And it works like this. So you're constructing a graph. And uh, uh, so you're constructing a network of, of researchers and new people, so new mentees, enter the, the network one at a time. And they're uh, male with a certain probability and female with a certain probability. Now, according to the proportions of females and males that happen to occur in that population, and for us in NLP, this is this 0.33, the one-third, for females rather, and for males it's the two-thirds. Now, a node becomes a, gen a specific gender with this probability, and then after that they have to establish a relationship, and they do that by kind of following who is the the most influential in the network currently so who has the most power now a power can be seen as uh, how many other people am i attached to a new mentee is going to attach to a supervisor with uh, a probability that's reflected by the degree of that supervisor in the network how many other nodes that, that supervisor is already attached to which is that uh, researcher's influence. Now, this is called a rich-get-richer mechanism. Now, when we're looking at homophily in the network, what we want to look at is the number of female nodes and the number of male nodes currently in the network. Just based on the, these proportions of female and male nodes, if all edges were e equally likely, how many mixed edges would we expect to find? So how many mixed relations would we expect to find? And if that expected number of mixed edges is much above what we actually find in the network, then we can say that that network is showing homophily. Right. And, and the observation that you found was that it's consistently lower than what is expected according to this model. Yeah, exactly. For our network, we have this model of a minority-majority mechanism. So because we have a minority-majority we have a minority females and a majority males. We can make the assumption, and so it, it's an assumption in this model that there is a rich get rich, richer mechanism at work that mentees are going to want to attach to uh, more influential mentors. In fact, that anyone is going to want to attach to more influential people. And then finally, uh, there is this check for homophily. Does it exist or not in, in the network? And now what Avin et al. showed was that 
based on some definitions of uh, a glass ceiling effect that given these three mechanisms in the network that a glass ceiling theoretically will exist. And you have a, a specific formulation for how to characterize this glass ceiling. Could you give an intuition of how is it characterized? Yeah, sure. So uh, so this is totally directly from Avenadel's paper. Well, how you can think about it is you look at the nodes in the two populations that have the most power. So these are the nodes with the highest degrees from the male population and from the and the female population. And you consider that, so as you add more and more nodes, you consider the, the proportion of the female powerful nodes to the male powerful nodes. And now, if there's a decreasing fraction of the female nodes who contain a certain level of power or more with respect to the number of male nodes who, who uh, who have the same level of power or more. So if this proportion is decreasing and generally tending towards zero, then we, we can say that there is a glass ceiling. And this follows directly from the assumptions in the model they have. So you can conclude this without looking at the data at all, right? So this is a definition that I just gave you. So, so trying to describe what is a glass ceiling, where a glass ceiling is uh, a situation where so for females is is a situation where um, the levels of power that are obtained by males are not achievable by the same amount of females, simply not achievable. And in fact, that uh, when you look at the two proportions together, that the number of females having that amount of power with relation to the number of males uh, is tending towards zero. That means that they're becoming obliterated over time. So this is sort of the definition of the glass ceiling. And now you look at the three mechanisms at work here, meaning that there's a minority majority, that there's homophily in the network, and that there's a rich get richer tendency. Given those three mechanisms, mathematically it can be proven that this glass ceiling exists in the network. That's very interesting to study. I think this can be applied, be applied on a lot of other phenomena that I would want to be to study like things like to what extent people affiliate with, with others from the same country or from the same uh, ethnicity. And uh, yeah, I can see a lot of ways to extend this work. Totally. The question is getting the data. Right. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the, all these annotations. Uh, by the way, is the data available? Can you share? So I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an ethicist. I still don't know what are the sort of ethical ramifications of passing out data with everybody's gender annotated on it. But there are ethicists that I can talk to about it. So I think that anyone who's interested in that please come and join in the discussion with me, write to me. And I actually know a couple other people who have very similar data, who know a lot more about ethics than me. So we should probably get together and talk. But yeah, the data is available as soon as I know I'm not doing something dodgy by distributing it. Fantastic. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on this work? No, just uh, super happy that people are actually interested in this stuff. I didn't think anyone would read this paper, so I'm really glad that people are are interested. Thank you for doing all this hard work. Yeah, well, I, I know it wasn't easy. And thanks for inviting me. <laughs>